Welcome to the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, online nutritionist, weight loss coach, and hormone fixer-upper. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of information and inspiration, sharing with you simple and effective strategies from health, wealth, and all things personal growth. Get ready to become the master of your hormones and experience vibrant health to live a life of more power and possibility. Welcome back, everybody. Hope your week is off to an amazing start. Hope you're doing well. Today's interview is with my friend, Dr. Robin Murphy, and it is mind-blowing. We're talking about genetic testing, and she is one of the smartest women that I know. She's so incredibly intelligent and She is an expert when it comes to genetic testing, and I was so excited to have this conversation today. I learned so much from her, and we dive into all things genetics. So, you know, what is the most interesting connections that you can make by looking at your genetic test and some of the things that you can find out by doing your genetic test and how your diet is actually impacting your genes and is the keto diet good for all women? There's so many things that you can learn from doing your genetic test. So for example, diet. You can learn how fats and carbs affect your risk for obesity and diseases such as diabetes. You can learn about detoxification and how quickly your body actually removes toxins and what you can do to adjust and optimize your detox pathways. You can learn about mental health, focusing on how genes affect your cognition and your stress and your emotions and even substance addiction. Hormonal health, certain genes can show you if you have predispositions towards factors that may affect hormone imbalance, like your thyroid or your estrogen and testosterone. There are so many cool things that you can learn from doing a genetic test. And the great thing is that when it comes to genetic testing, you only need to test once. You just test your genes once. Now with something like hormone testing, that is something that you would want to test more frequently, right? Because your hormones are going to change a lot and at different stages based on your age and different protocols you might be implementing. You want to be staying on top of that and seeing how your hormones are changing and fluctuating. And with genetic testing, you really only need to do your testing once. And so I had my testing done quite a few years ago And the testing was really complicated to read and to understand. And it was kind of at the beginning where genetic testing was like just kind of starting to come out onto the market. And so the test that Dr. Robin Murphy works with is called My Blueprint, and it is very user-friendly. So I'm so excited to get my testing done and to look at all these different areas, and more importantly, to have her review it for me because she is just an expert and so intelligent in this area, and having her feedback and her input and her interpretation of the genetic test is really going to be phenomenal. So what we're going to do in a few future episode is I'm going to get my testing complete and then we're going to have Dr. Robin Murphy come back and do an episode where she's actually going through my genetic test. And I think it will be really insightful and really, really cool. And yes, I'm okay with sharing that information. It's all good. So there's a few things to know about our episode today. Now, number one, 
you might be really intrigued to move forward and do your own genetic testing. And we've got an amazing discount that you can use over on the AOR website. So if you are in Canada, you can go to AOR.ca. Or if you're in the US, go to AOR.us. Now here's the thing and listen closely. Enter the coupon code HEALTHYHORMONES2020 at checkout and you'll get 5% off whether you're ordering supplements or whether you're ordering the genetic test. And that discount code is stackable. So when you go onto the website and if you see that there is already a 10% coupon code, you can still use Healthy Hormones 2020 on top of the other coupon codes. So for example, you can get 15% off, which is amazing. So you're adding on that 5% to whatever discount is already there, which is amazing. So whether you're in Canada or the US and you want to dive into the genetic testing, because trust me, after you listen today to Dr. Robin Murphy, you're going to want to dive in and do your own testing. And to take it one step further, because, you know, testing is one thing, but actually getting the support and getting the interpretation around the testing, that's a whole other thing. So Dr. Robin Murphy and I were talking about how can we best support women and how can we really take their genetic test and their results and help to put this together for them in a easy to use way and design protocols and design some strategies to really help them optimize their genetic blueprint. So if you head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash genetic test, we have actually put together a 12-week program where you can come on board, get your genetic testing done, and then work with Dr. Robin Murphy to dive deeper into all of these areas of your genetic test, diet, sensitivities, nutrient needs, physical fitness, hormonal health, obesity risk, detox, and mental wellness. You can dive into all of these areas with Dr. Robin Murphy. She'll explain all of this through your genetic test. And then you'll come to Holistic Wellness and work with your coach who will put together specific supplement, nutrition, and lifestyle protocols to address these different areas. And you can also add on the Dutch hormone test to this or vice versa. Maybe you're currently going through our Dutch hormone program and you're one of our clients one-on-one right now, and you'd like to add on the genetic test to that that's available to you. So we really want to help you not just get this data and this information, but what do you actually do with the data? What do you actually do once you have this information at your fingertips? It doesn't really matter unless you know how to implement the changes that are going to positively affect these areas and really create some change. So we're here to support you. You've got Dr. Robin Murphy supporting you through your genetic test. And she, like I said, is phenomenal and so incredibly smart when it comes to this. And then you've got our coaches here at Holistic Wellness that you'll work with one-on-one as well, who will guide you through your protocols and all the strategies. So I'm really excited for that. Head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash genetic test to go learn more about that. And you can also head on over to aor.ca or aor.us. Enter the code healthyhormones2020 to grab supplements 
or get your My Blueprint Genetic Test shipped to your door. All right. So Dr. Robin Murphy is a clinical research advisor for AOR and a practicing naturopathic doctor, public speaker, and researcher, immensely passionate about educating both healthcare professionals and the public about advances in genetics and integrative medicine. Dr. Murphy strives to empower individuals with the proper tools and information to significantly change their health. As scientific advisor for DNA Labs, Dr. Murphy is the co-developer of Lifestyle Genetic Tests, in addition, author to several publications in medical journals, and holds a Bachelor of Science from the University of Alberta and Doctor of Naturopathic Medicine from CCNM. With advanced training and certifications in functional gastroenterology, hormone therapy, biological medicine, and advanced medical herbalism. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. You are going to learn so much about genetics. And if you got any questions, come find us over on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Foodie or connect with Dr. Robin Murphy on Instagram. Thanks so much for being here and enjoy today's episode. Hello, Dr. Robin Murphy. Welcome to the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm really excited. Thanks, Samantha, for having me. This is great. Yes, my pleasure. So before we dive in, share with our audience more about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am a naturopathic doctor by trade, and I would say a self-proclaimed nerd. <laughs> I just absolutely love diving into research. So my role at AOR is clinical research advisor, and I'm also, I sit on the scientific advisory board of DNA Labs, and I'm also a clinician as well. So that's a little bit about myself, and I am an adventure enthusiast, so I like to travel, I like to read, I like to do a lot of crafts, that kind of stuff. So That's awesome. Well, yeah. you sound like you're super busy over there. <laughs> I also like to keep busy. <laughs> yep, yeah. absolutely. And so I know you're very involved with genetics and genetic testing, and I'd love to know, like, how did that all get started? Yeah, it's kind of serendipitous because... Early in my practice, recently when I graduated, what happened is there was a genetic testing company that sent out free kits to all naturopathic doctors so that they could get their DNA tested. And when I got this kit, I just thought, this is the coolest thing. This is the future of medicine, where we can actually personalize your treatments according to your DNA. Okay, so I was Super like, cool. I'm all in. So I go into the company to get my results and I end up speaking with the medical genomicist who was actually the co-founder of the company. And we just hit it off. We geeked out for three hours and we just talked about genetics and physiology and the applications and kind of, you know, within a day or two after that conversation, they offered me a job. So it wasn't something that I pursued necessarily. It was just something that I think the universe presented. Right. And ever since I got into that, you know, my love for research, my love for training physicians, as well as the public, empowering them with this incredible information, it just kind of opened up so many doors from there. Awesome. That's so amazing. So, I mean, I'm sure our audience, there's probably a mix of people who maybe have already done genetic testing and some who are very new to it. So can you just give us a bit of an overview? Like, what does it even mean to test your DNA? Yeah, I think I take that for granted, actually, because I'm so involved in the realm. But genetics, essentially, we're talking about your DNA. 
So your DNA is your code. This is the code that provides the information for your cells, what to make, how to function, how to respond to the environment. So we pass this down through our lineage. So we get half of our genetic information from our mom, half from our dad, and this is what makes up our genetic code or our blueprint. And so there's a ton of information that we can start to understand about an individual based on their genetics. So there's different types of genetic testing that you'll see out there. So there's genetic testing, such as paternity testing. This is to see if, you know, someone's a father. (laughs) Right. They have forensic genetics, which is really cool. So they're looking at, you know, finding criminals and, you know, looking at genetic material that's left at a crime scene. Right. And then there's testing within fertility. So looking at whether or not the embryo is healthy or if there's chromosomal errors, you can also do genetic testing at the hospital. So that's for genetic-based diseases. That'll be things like celiac disease. And then there's this whole other branch of genetic testing, which is called lifestyle genetic testing. It's also called functional genomics, as well as nutritional genomics. So that's what I really do is look at the nutritional side and functional lifestyle side of genetic testing. So this is where we can start to dive in to different areas about someone's health related to what is their individual nutrient needs, what are their susceptibilities to certain lifestyle diseases, what is their response to certain exercises or, you know, detox pathways, hormones, there's really so much that we can get into. So with the lifestyle genetics, what we're using this information for is to determine what specific lifestyle strategies are going to be best for that individual. So it's predictive medicine, it's predictive testing. And this is, you know, what I believe is going to be something that is going to be pretty standard in medicine in probably five years, maybe 10, you know, (laughs) depending how it goes over the next little bit here. But there's just such cool information that you can find out about yourself yeah. uh, related to this. Yeah. There really, really is. Like I had my test completed, it was probably about four or five years ago, I think. And at that time, like it was so confusing <laughs> getting the report back. I was like, I have no idea how to interpret any of this. So I know some of the more recent genetic testing is actually user-friendly. Like people can actually read what their DNA is showing them. So can we just kind of go through like, what are some of the cool things that we're going to learn by testing our DNA? I know like you mentioned nutrition, Mm -hmm. but there's so much more. You mentioned detox. Like what are all the different areas that we can really see through through doing our testing? Yeah. So I would say, you know, the landscape of genetic testing and how the information is being presented has really shifted. And so I think it was through my old company that I was working with that you got your genetic test done. Yeah. And so how that's evolved has been quite, you know, rapid and profound because we've Mm -hmm. now looked at this and delivered the information for the end user, which is the general public rather right. than it being for clinicians. Right. And I would argue even for geneticists, <laughs> you know, of how the report was written previously, yeah. but it, it's keeping the end user in mind. So the way that the report is delivered is through very easy to understand layman's terms. You can get into the genetics, but it's more about what the action items are. So the action items can be kind of thought of of eight different 
main sections. So we're looking at dietary interventions. So what type of diet are you going to respond best to? Are you actually sensitive to fat and gaining weight? Or are you going to respond well to a keto diet or a low fat diet for weight loss? Or are you prone to say diabetes and insulin resistance? Do you have to back off the carbs? And even looking at heart health, do you respond well to a Mediterranean diet in lowering your cholesterol or triglycerides? So just some specifics around you know, the intervention of the diet and the outcome. Rather than this trial and error approach, you're right. getting more insights into based on literature, based on research, what are you going to respond to? We also look at sensitivities too. So are you a candidate or do you have any sort of risk factors for celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity? So we can see that through our genetics. We can see if you, you're lactose intolerant and should be avoiding dairy. We can look at your alcohol sensitivity, salt sensitivity, and how those affect the heart as well. We're also looking at specific nutrients. So we can dive into that, all the different nutrients that can tell us really about what is your individual nutritional need. So are you getting enough, you know, say vitamin D, or are you getting enough B vitamins, you know, from your food? Do you actually need to supplement? Or, you know, and, and we'll talk about this later, are you getting enough choline? And this is something that none of us <laughs> think about. We can't really test for it. For sure. In clinic, there's no you know, sensitive, accurate test to show us tissue levels or brain levels of choline. Yet this is an integral nutrient that's needed for everybody and everybody may not know. So some of these, you know, nuances that we may not think of, it's starting to give us insights into. So we also look at physical fitness and exercise, you know, is there risk for any sort of injuries? What types of exercise are, do you have a, more of a predilection towards What's your detox pathways, your hormone health, any risks for poor estrogen elimination? We also look at obesity risk and then some factors related to mental wellness, like are you susceptible to stress? Wow, that's pretty <laughs> fascinating. So what would you yeah. say to somebody who would be like, well, my genetic test said I can eat gluten and my genetic test said that I'm fine. I can have dairy. Like, what would you say to that? Because I guarantee that that's, you know, sometimes the approach that people might take. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's such an insightful question because we have to remember that this is a genetic test. So we're coming back with genetic based outcomes and information, but this isn't the end all be all. We never just look at someone's blood work and say, oh, we tested these six parameters. There must be nothing else wrong with you because all of these are normal. And I'm right. sure most of the listeners have gone to their doctor, they've gotten some tests done, and they tested, say, TSH. And then right. they said, well, your TSH is normal. Your thyroid must be totally healthy. Right. And we <laughs> so know that's, that that's not the case. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. we know that there's other biomarkers, there's other tests out there that help to you know, color the rest of our health. So we always take the genetic testing and those results into account with other testing, with past medical history, symptomology, you know, what your goals are, working with a nutritionist and looking at your dietary, you know, intake. Do you have any other diseases, other tests that we can get into? So it's definitely not the end all be all. And gluten, I think, is an interesting topic because a lot of people are questioning whether or not they should be 
eating gluten, not just because of celiac, but because of some of the chemicals that are integrated into the grain that people are actually having a reaction to. So that is a conversation that I have with people that even though genetically you're not at a high risk for celiac disease, you may still have a sensitivity to it. So an allergy to it, you have to test for it. So that would be a different test. That would be a food allergy test. But you also, depending on your health as well, depending on your gut health, depending on if you have any diseases, autoimmunity, it may not be appropriate for you to be eating grains because of their inflammatory nature or because of their toxic impact that it may be having on your on your overall health. Right. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Because <laughs> yeah. I guarantee I will hear that from many people. I'll make another note too on dairy because this is testing the genetic test is looking at lactose intolerance. So that just means that your body, whether or not you can break down the sugar in milk. So lactose is a sugar and our enzyme is lactase. So someone can be lactose tolerant meaning they are not getting symptoms like bloating, gas, loose stool when they consume dairy, but they can still have an allergy to dairy. And so the genetic test is not telling you about an allergy. Right. Okay. Good to know. Thanks for clarifying that. So we were talking the other day and you mentioned something about the connection between your gallbladder estrogen and chemical toxicity. And I was like, what? I have to know more about this. And how does it even all relate to genetics? So I'm going to let you take it away and dive into that. Yeah. I'm curious how many people connect their gallbladder and chemical burden and hormone health together. Yeah. Not many people. Like we haven't even talked about gallbladder health on... Yeah. On the podcast, so, yet. you know, from a basic, you know, understanding here, your gallbladder, it sits just below your liver. And what it's doing is it's collecting bile. Okay, so then when you eat a meal, then the gallbladder contracts and it's, it secretes bile. And this is helping you to absorb fats. So it's emulsifying fats. A lot of people have their gallbladder removed because they're susceptible to the developing stones. So these people will still have bile that they're producing, but they don't have as strong of bile release because they don't have that stored bile available to them. So bile, it's not just for fat absorption. What this whole system is doing is it's also a way that our body eliminates certain toxins as well as hormones, as well as drugs. So anything that's fat soluble, the liver will be processing And then it will be putting into the bile and then the bile will get released and then it will hopefully get excreted in the stool. Right. And so a lot of strategies, say if you have high cholesterol, will be to take fiber during a fat-rich meal to help bind that cholesterol and then bind it so it doesn't get reabsorbed into the body and then it gets eliminated out. So bile is extremely important, not only for toxins removal. So these are toxins that are fat soluble. They're known as, they can be endocrine disruptors. So what that means is endocrine is hormone right. disruptor. Yep. You know, it's, it's disrupting our hormonal health. So these are chemicals like plastics, things like phthalates, parabens, you know, BPA, dioxins, fire retardants, you know, they're pesticides, organopesticides, they're literally ubiquitous. They're all over. So it's a real problem. And what happens is these chemicals, they look like 
kind of look like estrogen. They look like hormones. So they bind to our hormone receptors. So they can disrupt our natural hormonal balance. So the bile, if you're having sluggish bile, or you're not secreting the bile appropriately, then you could have a toxic buildup. Right. So this can contribute to hormone dysregulation. We know it can mimic a lot of symptoms like estrogen dominance. It can completely throw off a woman's cycle. And they're also known as obesogens, which is, you know, great. (laughs) What (laughs) ends up happening is it gets stored in our fat tissue and that can lead to resistant weight loss. So, you know, those women who are out there, you know, they're eating right, they're exercising, they're doing everything, and there's this weight still not coming off. So there's something else that's going on there. And we've also seen that these toxins can disrupt our insulin and our blood sugar regulation as well. So there are some studies that some organic pollutants, you can't get diabetes unless you have a certain level of these pollutants in the body. That's wild. It's wild. Yeah. So the the whole connection between bile, you know, bile is the way that we're secreting excess hormones as well as toxins. If all of this, you know, trifecta is available, you're not secreting your bile or it's sluggish, you're exposed to toxins and you're experiencing, you know, hormone disruption, then it's likely that this could be a factor. And where the genetics come in, which I find very interesting, and this is actually how I tied everything together, is that there's one gene called PEMT, PEMT, and this is responsible for producing choline in the body. So this enzyme helps our body to convert betaine to choline. And the choline is part, it's essential for our bile, okay? And what's fascinating is estrogen will actually increase the body's expression of this enzyme and gene. So if your estrogen is high, the body says, hey, wait a second, we need a way to process this and get this out of the body. We're going to increase our choline production, which will also help with bile liquidity. So it helps with bile flow. And then that'll help to eliminate some of these excess estrogens. So people can actually have genetic predispositions where this enzyme isn't as efficient at producing choline. So they're at a risk for choline deficiency. And what would this show up as? Well, choline, A, you know, bile sluggishness. So intolerance to fat. They may get right upper quadrant pain if they're having a fatty meal. They may notice that their stools are a little bit more sticky or they float. That's also a sign of fat malabsorption. Right. They could be having a lot of hormonal symptoms. So PMS, breast tenderness, they could be getting acne, weight gain, and then they could also be sensitive to chemicals, start noticing that they're getting, you know, more sensitivity to fragrances, to odors, getting headaches, just feeling kind of unwell. And it's, it's unfortunate because it's a, it's a slow build too. People don't notice these things right away. Right. They'll just start noticing, oh, you know, I'm not really feeling that great, but for sure, it'll be their new norm. And then they don't even remember five years ago that, you know, how sharp they were or, you know, how much energy they had. And they just kind of decide that that's natural aging. Yeah. I was just going to say, I feel like they just chalk it up to, oh, I'm getting older. 
Yeah. And that's not the case. You know, I've seen 76 year olds with just as much energy as, you know, a a 26 year old. I think, you know, the Guinness book of records for marathon runners, I think as a man, don't quote me on this, but I believe it was like 95. He finished a marathon. Oh my so. God, that's crazy. <laughs> I'd be so curious to do like my dad's genetics because, you know, I think about my grandparents who on my father's side and my mother's side, you know, they've all passed away, but my grandparents on my dad's side, like they were smokers, drinkers, they were sharp well into their late 80s and energized. And, you know, my dad, like, yes, he's overweight and like he will just not take my advice. You know how it is when you're yep. <laughs> right. I'm sure it's the same thing we in your nothing. family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> they'll to listen our parents. Yeah. Totally. They'll listen to Dr. Oz, but they won't listen to me. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like, yes, my dad is definitely overweight, but like he has so much energy. He's going to be 70 next year. Like he just has so much energy. Go, go, go. He's super sharp and he doesn't even sleep a lot. Like that's just been his sort of constitution for years. Like he would sleep like maybe five hours and that was his thing. And I'm just like, I'm so curious to look at his genetic makeup because it's like sometimes I'm like, where do you get all this energy from? I'm exhausted sometimes being with you. Yeah. Well, I think that also shows good detox pathways. Yes. I was going to say he probably, yeah, yeah, I was totally going to say that he probably has a really great detox pathway for sure. Because when we talk about detoxification, what's kind of interesting is about up to 50% of the population is missing one of their major detoxification genes. It's called glutathione S transferase. So there's seven different types of this, but you know, it used to be adventitious. It used to help us in our survival because research shows that it can actually improve our body's response to vegetables like cruciferous vegetables. We get more antioxidants from them because we're not processing them as quickly. Right. But now that we have this toxic burden, you know, there's over 22,000 chemicals that we're exposed to on a daily basis. Crazy. We have to think about the accumulation over a lifetime. And so a lot of these chemicals, I would say, you know, our parents' generation, they were definitely exposed to in the 50s and 70s, but they may not have had the same exposures during their, you know, childhood or, you know, even in utero. For sure. We're starting to understand that these chemicals are found in cord blood, in, in fetal blood. So babies are being born already with a toxic load more than, you know, our grandparents would have had. Right. Which makes sense. So yeah, it it probably has to do with the exposures, the timeline, his detox pathways, and you know, just those anomalies. (laughs) For sure. And like, I, I mean, I'm definitely a lot more sensitive to things like smells and whatnot. I can't, deal like walking through a mall when you walk by like the fragrance department, which is so funny because I used to work in fragrances way Mm -hmm. back in my teenage days. And yeah, things like that I'm super sensitive to. And he's, you know, just, it doesn't phase him at at all. And I think when I did my test years ago and and I could have this incorrect, but I believe that it was like my phase one detox. Like I didn't have like any genes there, but in my phase two, it was like double or something like that. Like I remember Mm -hmm. seeing that in my testing. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm, and maybe you can correct me, but I think that essentially like the way that I understood it was that if I'm exposed to any kind of toxin, 
it would make sense that I'm going to be quite reactive to it or react to the smell, but I can actually in my phase two can detox it out really, really well. So we can in genetics and how our liver is essentially processing all these chemicals is we can think of them as phase one, phase two. Right. So phase one, what it's doing is it's increasing the water solubility of these chemicals. So it's right. helping to start prepare it to then get eliminated by the body. In that first phase, there's an enzyme that you can test for. It's called CYP1A2, and it actually processes 95% of caffeine. So depending on whether you're sensitive to caffeine... Mm, I'm a fast metabolizer. And whether or not you're a fast metabolizer, meaning that you're not sensitive to caffeine. So you can have a cup of coffee, you know, afternoon or after dinner, it's not going to affect your sleep type of thing. That can give us indications about this enzyme system and how it's functioning. So typically, and this gets a little bit complex because it depends on the chemical that we're talking about, but with say cigarette smoke, with chemicals that are used for meat, like smoked meat or, you know, sausages or things like that, there's these chemicals that get processed by this enzyme and people who have a fast metabolism, what ends up happening is they actually transform this really quickly. And we would think, oh, this is good. It's going to get out of the body, but it actually makes a lot of these more toxic to the body because it's increasing the solubility, meaning Uh that it's now accessible to more parts of your body. Makes sense. So then it really depends on what is this next step, this phase two doing. And so this phase two has to do with things like glutathione, things like our methylation or our B vitamins. So what is your capacity to be able to finalize this second step in kind of the assembly line of detoxification? And this is where we can start to see increase in susceptibilities to damaging effects of, say, drugs or toxins. And if you're processing these chemicals really quickly, but then you're not able to remove them at the same rate, that's where we can see more sensitivities. And clinically, what I've seen, I've seen it go both ways. People tend to have more sensitivities up front if they have a slow metabolizer. So they're they're not as quick at processing some of these chemicals. But I've also seen where people are processing them more quickly, but then that second phase is blocked. And it's more, it takes decades for those symptoms to start to arise. To show up. Wow. Yeah. That's and pretty so crazy. They'll, they'll start to notice, yeah, a little bit, you know, irritation to fragrances and, and smells, a little bit more headaches, maybe more sensitivities are starting to show up, maybe more allergies are starting to show up. And then just all these vague, you know, symptoms, weight gain, problems sleeping, hormonal disruption. So I think it's a big problem these days. For sure. And I mean, even though I'm a fast metabolizer of caffeine, that doesn't mean I'm drinking it all the time and taking advantage of it. You know, I'm still very reactive to it. Different types of caffeine, like for example, I rarely ever have coffee at Starbucks, but if I do, oh my God, my heart is like racing out of my chest. Mm. You know, so I, I'm more conscious of having decaf and then also thinking about my adrenal function and my thyroid function. So it's, again, I just want to make that clear because again, somebody might look at their test and be like, oh, I'm a fast metabolizer of caffeine. I'm fine. I can drink it all day. It's not a problem. But again, it's like, let's look at these other areas. Yeah. And Health Canada, there's still stipulations based on what is safe 
of how much people should be drinking. So it's still 300 milligrams a day, even if you're a fast metabolizer, which is equal to about three coffees. Yeah, that's great. I could never do that. <laughs> well, so I know people that drink a pot of coffee. Yeah, I know. It's and if insane. you're a slow metabolizer and you drink more than four cups of coffee a day, it actually increases your chance of a non-fatal heart attack by 64%. So this is why this information is useful to know, because once you know that information, you're, you're hopefully going to make different lifestyle choices. For sure. To mitigate some of the risks, especially if you have family history of heart disease. And this is, you know, all what we're trying to do is prevent diseases and make sure that people feel their best the best quality of life and are really making the key choices that are going to make a big difference in their life. There's literally millions of good pieces of advice (laughs) on the internet. And most people, a lot of them are relying on kind of Dr. Google. Yep. And there's a lot of confusion because they don't have the background to then say, you know, whether that source is credible or whether that information applies to them. So at least what this can do is it can provide a platform for people to start to understand more about their individual health, you know, what diet is appropriate for them, what nutrients are best for them, you know, their exercise regime, you know, maybe they have some conditions or symptoms that they just haven't been able to figure out, you know, why they're going on. I've seen a lot of people get clarity with some of their you know, symptoms based on the genetics. Oh, for sure. And I just really quickly want to go back to the comment about the gallbladder. So what happens if somebody doesn't have their gallbladder? Mm -hmm. So there's still things that you can do to help increase bile production. Right. So like I said, you're not going to be producing or secreting as much as if you had a gallbladder, but there are certain nutrients like choline, glycine, taurine, vitamin C or B vitamin, zinc, all of that is important, bile salts as well, Yes, in order to produce bile appropriately. And then we can have herbs that actually stimulate bile production and then release. Amazing. So that would be things like, you know, dandelion root, for example. There's other ones that are less familiar. Greater celandine is one of my favorite. If you're actually walking in High Park, it grows naturally in Toronto here. And you can pick off the plant when you open it up. It looks like a waxy yellow liquid that comes out. And so if you taste it, it's the most bitter. Crazy. Yeah. And it's any bitter taste is what's stimulating that bile secretion and gallbladder release. So, you know, if we look at traditional cultures, you know, Germans did this a lot where they would have bitters. They would have aperitifs before or Italy, you know, does this a lot. Absolutely. And so this is to help prime your digestive tract to be able to absorb the food that we're eating. And then a lot of cultures will also have digestives, which are, again, they could be bitters, they could be carminatives that help with reducing gas and just help with the digestion and absorption of food. I'm super drawn to bitters. Like I take digestive bitters, but just bitter food in general, like give me a plate of rapini and I am the happiest person ever. And dandelion, like I, I love bitter foods. I, I'm not yeah. sure my, what what's up with my palate, but... So I'm the exact same way. And I did a genetic test. It actually said I'm missing one of the bitter 
taste sensors. Interesting. So that's why I can tolerate oh. everything bitter. So I would, I would guess you're probably one in the same. Oh, that's so, okay. I definitely want to find that out. That's super intriguing. Whereas my, my father, he's a super taster. Right. And so he has a very sensitive palate, great for wine drinking. You know, he's a wine connoisseur. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not going to throw back bitters the same way that I do. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. Because I, I think about my fiance as well. Like sometimes we're, you know, we're eating the exact same meal and he'll be like, this just, this tastes so weird or this. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, yes, yeah, so I wonder if he's, he's a super taster. I wonder. Yeah. That'd be really in- interesting. Okay. So, so many different areas I want to dive into. Oh my God, I got so many questions for you. Now, predispositions to food sensitivities. Is this something that we can see through genetic testing? So the only food sensitivities that we can really look at is gluten sensitivity. Okay. So again, it has to do with how the immune system is responding to the food based on whether there's a a risk for a disease, celiac disease, or whether there's uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So when we look at other food sensitivities like egg and almond, you know this is this is different because these are typically acquired. So after we're born, you know we develop these sensitivities based on our you know in, introductions and gut health, a number of different factors. So that is going to be different, and I get that a lot. You know because people test their genes and they say, oh well you know, I'm not sensitive to dairy. I'm just going to eat it. It's like, no, you're not lactose intolerant. Right. Do another test. You may still have sensitivities to other foods. It's right. It's not all inclusive. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good for clarifying that one. And I'd be so interested to know, like, has there been an interesting connection that you've made, you know, doing research in genetics that maybe women might not be aware of? Hmm. I really think it's, what we talked about before, which is the bile, looking yeah. at that PEMPT gene, which is part of our methylation pathway. Yep. So, you know, I think methylation, this term has been used quite broadly. It's starting to become popular, popularized. And there's this emphasis on this one gene called MTHFR. But the reason there's so much connection here is because this pathway is found in every single one of our cells for the most part. And it's what's responsible for healing our DNA, for, you know, repairing our cells and making sure that we have something called SAMI, which is used for hundreds of biochemical pathways. So if you think about this, if there's issues in this one pathway, then there's going to be a lot of issues that can show up where what we say in research is it's correlation, not causation. Right. So just because there's a lot of firefighters at a fire doesn't mean that the firefighters caused the fire. <laughs> right. They're there for a reason. And so when we look at particularly women's health, we're starting to discover more and more about how estrogen is being broken down and particularly the types of estrogen that our body is producing. So estrogen, it's a hormone, it's an anabolic hormone, it's responsible for producing tissue, you know, we think of increasing our breast tissue, increasing the endometrial lining, it's responsible for secondary sex characteristics in women, men also have it as well. But it's very, very active. So our bodies have to make sure that we're controlling that, that we don't just have estrogen. We know when women have too much estrogen floating around in their body, 
it can be a nightmare. <laughs> For sure. So we need a way to help regulate that growth. And the body does that by deactivating. We can think of it as deactivating the hormones. So that similar gene that we talked about, the CYP1A2 for caffeine metabolism, is actually one of the same enzymes that estrogen is processed through. So estrogen can get processed through the liver. It also gets processed locally in our breast tissue, in our reproductive tissues. So those will be different enzymes as well that are responsible for breaking those down. And there can be different genetic variations which can lead to women either not breaking down estrogen as quickly. And so there's more of a tendency to accumulate estrogen. This will add to their total lifetime estrogen burden. And when we talk about this in a clinical standpoint, we're talking about risk for breast cancer because we know too much estrogen unopposed can contribute to breast cancer. Right. Right. And then through a woman's lifetime, we also see that it can contribute to PMS, to fibroids. There may be a link there with endometriosis as well as other issues too. But genetically, we can be predisposed to not being as, as efficient at breaking down estrogens. Right. So it can go down into different pathways. There's one pathway which we call, you know, it's a healthy estrogen byproduct versus an unhealthy one. So the unhealthy one, you know, not to get too technical, but we call it 4-hydroxyestrogen. And this can actually cause more cellular damage and more DNA damage if it's in too high levels in the body. Right. There's also 16-alpha-hydroxy. So there is the Dutch test yes. that can look at this pathway and actually tell you, you know, how you're breaking down your estrogens and how you're removing them from your body. And there's genes that we can test to see exactly what your predisposition is. So with the Dutch test, we're really getting a snapshot of kind of what is your cycle in that month, right? What's the tendencies, but it can change, right? It depends on, you know, there's lots of lifestyle factors that we can incorporate to help with estrogen elimination. So if you're eating a lot of broccoli or you're having a lot of fiber or your B vitamins are good, then you may show normal estrogen metabolism. And you may think, okay, well, I'm at a low risk. It's fine. But without understanding the genetics behind it, you may not understand that you do have a predisposition or a tendency to go down that kind of 4-hydroxy and you may be at risk. And so it, it's important for you to be more diligent about maybe doing follow-up testing, say annually or biannually, to look at kind of your Dutch hormones and your estrogens, and then just being mindful about you know, appropriate surveillance, as well as you know, talking to your doctor or working with your healthcare provider for healthy estrogen and hormones you know, for your life, essentially. For sure. Yeah, we I talk about the Dutch test a lot because it's just so wonderful. And I think like combining doing the Dutch test plus genetic testing, I mean, that will be amazing for so many women just to give them such a really great overview of, you know, not just their hormonal picture, but all of these other amazing areas mm. of their life too. So yeah, it really rounds out yes. the overall perspective. Again, we're not just looking at one test in isolation. We want to look at a compilation, you know, to understand the whole person. And each of these tests is just kind of a, a little snippet of yep. information. I love that. Okay, so let's talk about diet, mm-hmm. the keto diet specifically, <laughs> because we know that it is like 
all the craze and everyone feels like they got to jump on it. And, you know, with a lot of the programs and the things that we do here, I like to take a really balanced approach. It's, and, you know, and again, everybody is so bio-individual, but I would love your, your take on the keto diet because all women think it's the thing to do. And is it really going to benefit all women and how will our genetic test show us if this might be beneficial for us or not. Yeah. And you know, I have to say I'm prone to fads as well. And it's not just because of, you know, the information piece. It's also because I want to know what patients are going through. And so I'll typically put myself through different types of diets. I'll put myself on all these different supplements and (laughs) right to (laughs) be like your own guinea pig. Yeah, exactly. And so I actually did the, the keto diet you know, I got a bunch of supplements, I was doing ultra low carbs. And what I found is, I did not lose any weight whatsoever. I actually still felt very hungry. And I wasn't getting the response that everybody says that they get. Right. And so a lot of people say this is great for weight loss for insulin regulation, you know, for brain and cognitive health. But there's no one size fits all. Of course. Yeah. And uh, of course, we understand this intellectually, but, you know, from a practical level, people are just looking for, you know, they're looking for results. And what they'll do is they'll do this trial and error approach. So especially, you know, in the new year, there's a lot of, you know, New Year's resolutions that people are looking for results. And this is kind of their platform to start a new healthy year. And it can be really kind of demoralizing when you put all your eggs in one basket, for sure, you put in all this effort, you know, four, six weeks, and you, you don't budge. And when you don't have an answer as to why it can be really disappointing, for sure, you know, there's a lot of self blame that can come with that as well. And I think it also creates inappropriate relationships with food, for you sure, know, food then becomes the you know, the enemy. Yeah. And this is something that I don't think is healthy for women in particular, or for society to be hyper vigilant about these extreme diets. Now they do work for some people. There's lots of evidence for insulin resistance, for epilepsy, for brain cancer. But like I said, it doesn't work for everyone. And for myself, when we actually dive into my genetics, it shows that I'm extremely sensitive to fat. And that if I increase my saturated fat levels, I'll actually gain more weight. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about these studies is they show that in these individuals, they have a higher sensitivity to fat, but also a higher craving for fat and sugar. And then this typically when we eat high fat meals, it causes us to feel full for a long period of time. Right. And that's one of the weight loss strategies is you tend not to eat as much. Right. But in my case, and with these genetic variations is as you, as you eat fat, you're not getting the same signaling to the brain saying that you're full, that you're satiated, or satisfied. And so the tendency for myself and similar individuals is that they continue to eat. And so they actually consume more calories than their genetic counterparts. And when they what's really, you know, fascinating, and we when we want to get into targeted personalized dietary treatments, we can see that when these individuals reduce their saturated fat to less than 22 grams per day, they actually weigh less than the other group. And so they do way better on a lower fat meal 
lowering their dairy intake and other high saturated fat foods. Right. On the other side of that, there's predispositions to insulin resistance that people can have from a genetic standpoint. So then the question becomes, do I lower my fat and then increase my lean protein? Or can I increase my carbs? Because sometimes people do better on a higher carb you know, diet. They have better sleep, better mood, and they just feel better overall. Right. And But if you have a, a sensitivity to high insulin resistance, then, you know, increasing those carbohydrates is not going to be key. So we can start to really pinpoint whether or not keto is the best option for you or, you know, other varieties of macronutrients, especially for certain, you know, goals like weight loss or reducing blood sugars and risk for diabetes. It's important. That's super fascinating. Yeah, I'm I'm the same as you. I with my genes, I can't do more than 22 grams of saturated fat. And you know, like to be clear with everybody that's listening, like this doesn't mean not to ever eat fat, but you can still eat monounsaturated, which might be more beneficial for you, right? It's just especially with the keto craze, I think there there's a really big push on eating all your bacon and, you know, eating all the cheese and things like that. And it's like, there's still a way to do keto, but you can do it in a way that's more bio-individualized to you. Yeah. And importantly too, on that note, it's not about the total amount of fat that you're eating per day. It's the saturated fats. Right. And they also, there's other genes that we look at that look at your risk for low omega-3 levels as well as inflammatory levels. And certain individuals, if they're eating low omega-3 diets or they can't convert the omega-3s into the active forms, it actually increases the risk of metabolic syndrome. So they do really well on 10% of their total caloric intake with polyunsaturated fats and then 5% monounsaturated fats. So again, we can be very purposeful in what they're focusing their diet on to reduce those risks of insulin resistance, high cholesterol, weight gain, you know, high blood pressure. And they're not waiting till these symptoms arise. Right. And then trying to figure out, okay, how do I get these symptoms resolved? That's really, really cool. Okay. So before we wrap it up here, I know we spoke about estrogen, but what about other hormonal you know, things that we can look at from either thyroid or testosterone are these things that we might be able to look at through genetic testing? Yeah, I would say that there are tests and genes that we can look at that relate to this. We also have to take into account the clinical effect. So how much of an effect do these have on the overall clinical picture? So with with thyroid, there is an increased risk for some individuals to have higher TSH. So that's a lab marker to kind of test the activity of your thyroid, but it has a small clinical effect. So it's just one part of the piece of the puzzle that we can look at. We can also see if there's an increased risk for high sex hormone binding globulin, which is related to testosterone levels. So there are good studies looking at testosterone levels in men and how if the sex hormone binding globulin, this gene is there, they may have lower levels of available testosterone. But again, I would say, you know, smaller clinical effect. Yeah. And there is fertility panels that are in the in the works and development. Oh, that'd be so fascinating. So there's going to be a lot of exciting, you know, this is just such an area of 
rapid development and exploration that over the next five years, we're going to see a lot more related to hormones. It's just that the hormones are so complex. There's so many different genes, so many different pathways that's involved, and then so many external factors which can affect our hormones as well. Really awesome. That's really fascinating, especially from the fertility side. I think there's so many women that could really use the support in that Mm -hmm. area. So that would be really great. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And lastly, nutritional requirements and deficiencies. Uh, We kind of touched on this briefly, but you know, how do people know if they're getting the right amount of nutrients? Yeah, exactly. You know, Health Canada has kind of a dietary recommendation that kind of the population should try and achieve through their dietary intake. But what people don't know is this, this RDA or recommended daily allowance is really to prevent deficiencies. So it's not to optimize our overall nutritional status. It's just to make sure that you don't die from, say, rickets. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, you know, when we look at Canadian population, we see that there's a higher rate of, say, multiple sclerosis. So this is an autoimmune disease, and this can be related to vitamin D levels. So because Canadians just have an overall lower exposure to sunlight, it's not as strong. We're not getting as high of vitamin D. We have like six months of winter <laughs> and darkness that we yep. have to put up with. Unfortunately. But what's interesting is not everybody obviously develops this disease. It's only certain people that are going to be susceptible to having vitamin D deficiency. And those are the people that are going to require actually more vitamin D. So when we look at the studies, someone taking 1,000 IUs of vitamin D that's not going to do anything for some people who have genetic variations where they're not able to effectively transport the vitamin D and they have changes in their vitamin D receptor. So they could be taking a thousand, you know, I use daily, but they're actually not moving their numbers up at all. And they may not be reducing their risk for certain diseases like osteoporosis or MS. So that's an example, but we see that with so many different vitamins you know, we take for granted that when we eat food, we're digesting it, we have to absorb it, then we have to transport it through the blood, we have to get it to the cell, it then has to get inside the cell, then we have to activate it. It's a lot of work. Yep, it's a lot of work. And every single one of those steps can be influenced by our genetics, meaning that some people aren't going to be as efficient at, say, absorbing their B12. And so we can see this, we can predict how much B12 someone is going to need, or if they actually are not a good candidate for oral B12, and they have to get injections, or even the certain form of B12. You know, a lot of people are taking what's called methylcobalamin, which is an active form of B12. But we know that some people can be really sensitive to that based on their genetics. They just have a higher predisposition to higher adrenaline, and the B12 can kind of upregulate their conversion of noradrenaline to adrenaline. And they, you know, who wants to feel more anxious <laughs> from taking Right. That? Nobody. So, yeah, we can look at a number of different areas. So especially for vegans, I would say it's really important too, because there's certain vitamins that we rely on from animals. And what vegans do is they rely on some of those vitamins in their plant source, but they may not be efficient at converting that plant version into the active form. So they're at an increased risk for, say, vitamin A deficiency 
or maybe choline deficiency or B12. So again, that'll put them at an increased risk for say things like hormone or bile disruption. And vitamin A, you know, is is kind of essential for a number of different pathways, but fertility, for our thyroid and hormones, for our eye health, for our immune system. So what it can do, it can kind of give you an overview of some of the nutrients where you can understand where do you need to get more of. So maybe increasing those in your diet, right? maybe getting them tested as well to see exactly what your levels are. And then, you know, if needed, perhaps supplementing to help at least increase your nutrient stores and just make sure that you're optimizing your levels. So you're getting, you know, all your cells and biochemical pathways working properly. Amazing. Well, this was such a fascinating (laughs) conversation. I know we could probably go on for like hours and hours and we're definitely (laughs) going to have you come back. I would love to. Yes. And we'll do an interesting episode where we'll go through my test and I think that will be really interesting for, for a lot of people, myself, obviously, yeah. and have the expert over here really go through it. And I think that will be really great. So thank yeah, as you. As long as you're willing to share. Yep. I'm <laughs> open. Your personal uh, <laughs> insights on air. That's great. I'm totally open to it. I think it'll be really fascinating. And so before I let you go, where can everybody find you? And I also know you have a really great sort of like cheat sheet that everybody can go and download. Yeah. So I absolutely love teaching the public and empowering people with this type of information. I know genetics can be a little bit daunting for people, but I've created a cheat sheet for people to go to. They can find it at my website. So www.drrobinmurphy.com. And if you go forward slash genetic tips, then there's a downloadable sheet. That's kind of a, a cheat sheet, just a quick insight into some of the key lifestyle, nutritional, behavioral modifications that you can make based on your genes. So you can do this even before doing genetic testing just to see, you know, what you're going to get if you do decide to go down that route. That's super cool. And we'll be sure to put that link in our show notes as well. So everybody can access it. Mm -hmm. And are you hanging out anywhere on social media where anyone can come find you? Yep. Just at Dr. Robin Murphy. I like to post about not only genetics, but it just, you know, interesting things in the news and lifestyle and sometimes my cats. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Amazing. Check me out. It'd be great. Amazing. Well, thanks again for being with us today and I look forward to having you back and we'll connect really soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Look forward to it. All right. Take care. Thanks, Samantha. All right. I hope your mind was blown by our episode today. Dr. Robin Murphy is so incredible and so intelligent. I told you she's one of the smartest women that I know, and I always learn so, so much from her. You can connect with her on Instagram at Dr. Robin Murphy, and you can also follow AOR Health on Instagram and learn more about all of their amazing supplements and products and their genetic test. If you're interested in coming on board and working with Dr. Robin Murphy and my team and really get a protocol in place for your diet and detox and hormone health and really understand some of these risk factors for your health, then head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash genetic testing. And we really look forward to supporting you and working with you 
you and coaching you through some amazing strategic protocols and giving you the one-on-one support that you really need to make an incredible transformation in your life. And don't forget, head on over to AOR.ca if you're in Canada or AOR.us if you're in the US and use the coupon code Healthy Hormones 2020 at checkout for 5% off. And that 5% is stackable, which means if there's already a discount in place, you can add that 5% on in addition, which is pretty sweet. Thanks so much for being with us today. If you haven't left us a rating and a review, please do so on any podcast platform that you listen to us on. I always love reading them and connecting with you and seeing how we are impacting you and what you guys love to listen to the most. You can also find me on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Foodie. Thanks so much for being with us today. Looking forward to connecting with you next week. Have a wonderful week.